0: Welcome to the CTL Connection Podcast. I'm Peter Bell, and every week I'll be sharing an interview with a top engineering leader. Firstly, I want to thank AWS, who are our exclusive, ultimate partner, and without whom we couldn't run our summits or the business. AWS offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Reach out to aws-ctl-program at amazon.com if you're interested in learning more about their offerings. I'd also like to thank Code Climate, our sustaining partner. Code Climate is now offering full access to Velocity free for 45 days to the CTO Connection community. Velocity turns data from GitHub and Bitbucket into insights that improve the visibility of engineering work so that your team can stay aligned as they adapt to a distributed workflow. Check it out at codeclimate.com slash CTO Connection and use access code CTO Connection. I'd also like to thank our other sponsors, including Andela, Bugsnag, CircleCI, ITechArt, Carrot, LaunchDarkly, and Optimizely, for their continued support during these difficult times. And now on with the show. Today I'm speaking with Tolga Tahan, who is the Chief Technology Officer at Onica. Tolga, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. So as always, we go through the kind of backstory. So how did you end up in technology? What, what was your, your path to becoming a technologist and then an engineering leader?
1: Oh, wow. That, yeah, that takes me back. So um, really starting in middle school, I had this um, interest in computers, and, and this is in the 90s. I'll, I'll, I'll date myself. And um, I, I started by, by tinkering in the school computer lab, and then I made my parents get me a computer uh, and throughout high school, that grew into to you know a, a bigger and bigger hobby, a bigger and bigger passion. To where by the time um, I was done with high school, I actually was running the technology at my high school. Um, everything from like crawling through the rafters, running Cat Five cable, to setting up networks and um, and configuring servers. And so that's really where it started for me. I got. Started in the kind of the dot-com boom in the early 2000s, right out of uh, school. Worked uh, in a couple companies that went through that sort of roller coaster, you know, high big success and then and then big failure. Um, and, and after that, worked at other companies as sort of an engineering leader, kind of grew into from software development as the starting point to software development leadership to increasingly uh, more senior roles until um, in 2009... I started a company with a couple partners that was focused on initially sort of modern software engineering, kind of onshore consulting, um, which is a tough business, obviously, but then pivoted to the cloud a couple years in. So by 2013, it was really obvious that the bigger opportunity was to specialize around AWS. And so we took this business that had been built on the basis of doing software engineering and applied those software engineering skills. To the cloud which had us become a, a really different kind of cloud partner we weren't coming at this from like a network admin system admin it approach we were coming at it from a software dev approach and back then that was new back then this devops thing was new right the whole infrastructure
0: as a service thing back then was was not really what most people were doing
1: yeah and we were and so we were coming at it from this like new new angle that people hadn't hadn't really thought about or, or that maybe the cloud vendors were pushing but that enterprises were, were not yet understanding and that gave us an early start into this sort of cloud native adoption uh, ultimately that company was acquired by Onica, and then Onica was further acquired by Rackspace late last year Got
0: it. so what's your role at Rackspace then what do you do over there now
1: yeah, so at Rackspace, I'm the SVP and general manager for the AWS services business, which is just a lot of words that mean I um, lead the delivery of our consulting services that target AWS.
0: Uh, that's interesting that, you, that at Rackspace, I, I always historically thought of as a, as a hosting provider, but that you have a kind of professional services business around AWS. Uh, how, how did that come together?
1: Yeah, so Rackspace actually became an AWS partner quite some time ago, before the Onica acquisition, well before. Today at Rackspace, we actually view ourselves as a multi-cloud um, technology service provider. So while Rackspace does have a private cloud offering, we also do a lot of business and a lot of services work on all the hyperscalers. So AWS, Azure, and GCP, my focus is on the AWS part of that business, but um, but Rackspace is focused around providing professional services and managed services across all the clouds and across hybrid infrastructure.
0: Just out of interest, as a professional, as a consultant, you're obviously looking, it's just as a developer, you look at different programming languages. Should I learn Go? Should I figure out this Flutter thing, right? Why did you choose to specialize on the AWS stack from a personal perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it has to do with the right time and right place to some degree. So again, in 2000, you know, eleven and 12, you're doing software engineering projects or helping companies build SaaS products. And at the end of those projects, it's kind of a natural question. It's like, where do we host this thing now? At the time, AWS was kind of the only major hyperscaler, right? Um, the others were non-existent um, or, or very, very new. So we got into AWS because they were the, the first ones there. And then by the time we looked back, we had built so much expertise and specialization around the platform that, that made sense to just keep diving deeper and deeper.
0: It's it's an insanely powerful, but also complex platform. It's like every time I open up the AWS console, I'm like, oh, because <laughs> unfortunately, I just use it on an ad hoc basis. I've got some stuff on S3, and I use a little bit of this and that, but not doing it as a professional level. And I guess that's why it's so important to have the professional services. Like, how do you work with a company that's like, okay, we figured it out. We finally need to go stick all this stuff in the cloud. AWS is obviously the leader. Like, how do you think about getting them started? Like,
1: what's what's that process like for people who are adopting the cloud? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because the platform is so robust and has so much sort of breadth and depth to it that it can be overwhelming. And in fact, if you take a sort of traditional data center approach to cloud adoption, you don't end up realizing the full promise of the cloud. And so for a lot of reasons, not just the size of the platform, but also because you want to change your ways along the adoption path, it's really important to engage with some expertise. And so that's either means building out a team internally that's done it before, or it means partnering with someone like us who who does it for a living. Um, so we help customers rethink how they approach um, their technology stack as they do a cloud migration, because that's how you get to sort of the promised land of elastic scaling and you know, incredible fault tolerance and, um, and all these sort of benefits that you've heard about around cost and performance of the cloud. So
0: and this there's a lot of this overlap with, you know, the old kind of like 12 factor stuff, right? The idea that there's this set of things that you do to build an application that is deployable in a flexible manner, as opposed to, I assume I have direct access to the file system and all the files are going to be in C drive slash images.
1: Yeah. So at the software development level, you're right, theories like 12 factor, although we don't want to be um, dogmatic about a specific approach. We want to be pragmatic about the right approach for that um, application. But yeah, configurability, externalizing configuration is really, really important at the software level. But but as you move up this, or as you move, I guess, down the stack, um, it's important to also think about how is infrastructure spun up? Um, how does it scale? Are things ephemeral? And can you, in minutes, scale up and down without impact to your application? So we've seen cases where... Applications take 10 minutes or 15 minutes um, before they can accept traffic. Well, that doesn't make for a very good auto-scaling story. Right. Absolutely. So, so what is it that
0: typically causes those, those long lead times? Are, are there common causes or is it one of these things where you just start looking at it, run a profiler and kind of take it one issue at a time?
1: Yeah, you know, it's architectural choices that were made early on in the application. So if we think back again to the way we used to build applications, the assumption used to be, we're going to buy some beefy servers, and we're going to deploy this application on 10 of them. And startup time is not important, because it'll start up once. And what's important is do a lot of work at startup to increase the performance on a per request basis. We have to take a different approach, we have to be more balanced in that now and say, look, minimizing startup time is is as important um, as minimizing the compute intensity of each request. In fact, you could make the argument that since compute is elastic and unlimited for us today, and you're only gonna pay for the seconds of it that you use, there's less, there's less importance on the CPU time utilized per request as long as the sort of wall clock time uh, is reasonable. Um, the ability to to spin up and, and spin down more quickly is gonna build the elasticity that then supports that model.
0: That makes sense. Now- I have no recent background in dealing with problems of scale. I I wish I had, right? I've built all these applications, and I wish my biggest problem was that too many people were using them. But like most startups, the biggest problem was that not enough people were using them, uh, which is obviously the first thing you deal with. So assuming somebody's got beyond that point and they do have too many people using their app, are you seeing a trend? So I know you talked about spin-up time. Obviously, one way you could deal with that is you build up the new system and then kind of switch the IPs, right, to... To say, we're going to point to this system, and then, yeah, it's going to take 15 minutes to spin up the new version, but then once it's live and once we run the automated tests, we just repoint to a new set of instances. Do you take that approach sometimes, or is it still really important to, to reduce that, that
1: kind of initial load time, that spin-up time? Yeah, I mean, the startup time is just one example of, of lots of traits of an application that make it better or worse to migrate to a more cloud-native end state. The real goal is to get to that end state where the application can be deployed automatically, can be self-healing and can scale automatically. So there's a lot of kind of litmus tests we could use to say how close are we to that cloud native state. But in a perfect world, we get all the way to containers or or serverless, which are gonna need that model of quick startup and sort of they exist for the length of a request or as long as they need to exist, then they, they spin down or go away. And we want to start pushing towards that cloud-native end state more than a specific sort of um, problem. Makes sense. So
0: I know you said containers or serverless. There are obviously very different things, right? Because when I think, you know, if I built a Rails app or a Django app, like, I know how to spin that up using a container or if I've got a few of them using some kind of, you know, Kubernetes or something like that to spin up a collection of, of related containers, once you move to serverless, it becomes like a whole different game. How easy or hard do you find it is to help existing companies to move to something like, hey, we're just going to have functions as a service, and we're going to build everything as a as a set of collaborating lambdas?
1: Yeah, so I think we've done some disservice to the whole movement by, by calling it function as a service, because I have to admit that when you first hear that, even, even after doing it for years, that word makes you think. Hey, it's just little utility functions, little helpers. And I'm going to, am I going to really assemble a bunch of little helpers into a full application? But when you take uh, an approach to it um, using some of these tools like serverless framework, which is open source, or using SAM, which is Amazon's tool, you actually get a pretty normal development environment. So you're building an app that from a source point of view is organized into different entry points, has all the sort of layers you would expect of an application. It's not just like one function with a bunch of spaghetti code. It's actually as organized um, as a normal code base. It just so happens that each of your entry points, each request, each path um, that, that your web um, application handles becomes a different Lambda in the AWS sense, but it's all pointing back to this one sort of code base that still has all the supporting code, all the abstractions you would normally want to have. So when you think of it like that, and you have a tool that will then decompose it and deploy it out into a bunch of lambdas, it starts to make a lot more sense and get a lot more comfortable for people. And then the only sort of shift in the mindset of developers is really focused on, hey, how do I make things more ephemeral? How do I avoid persistent um, information in memory? How do I use uh, cloud services rather than local storage, which are easier shifts than this whole like you know, mindset of how you structure an app.
0: Right. At least all you now have to do is you're pulling from a different data point, right? It's like, oh, I'm pulling over the network, but it's just a different API. So I, I'm probably one of the people who I looked at AWS Lambdas when they first came out. I'm like, super cool. Would hate to build anything comprehensive or complex in it, just because at the time I didn't understand what's the developer testing story. How do I spin this up on my local laptop? Like, and day one, when Lambdas came out, there were not great stories around that. Uh, what have I missed? Because that is, I don't know, it's been a few years now. So I've been busy building other things. What have I missed? Like, how easy is it for a developer to spin this up on their local box? How easy is it to do like acceptance level testing in an automated manner, CICD? How close is it to bringing all these things that we'd consider professional software development to the serverless world?
1: Yeah. So I think, I think we have these two extremes and I don't think we have the great middle ground that you're looking for. So on one extreme, you have things like the AWS console that let you sort of go and just write a Lambda right in the console, and that's great for like the first Hello World to be, to get it to to make something work, but it's not a sustainable development model, right? Nobody thinks that that's how you're going to have a team of developers um, developing and version controlling in, in that mechanism, and you have sort of one level more sophisticated than that um, with sort of web-based IDEs that are trying to do the same thing from Amazon and from others, but I think that those only work. Um, For kind of hobbyist level or for getting started projects i think ultimately to get to a point where a professional software team is developing professional quality software you're going to need what everyone is used to local editors the ability to run the code locally the ability to run at least some of the unit tests locally the ability to like have the refactor tools that you're used to and all that and so to do that we don't right now have i would say a definitive industry agreed upon approach for how do you structure a serverless project? How do you, um, what tools do you use? It's really, these things all exist out there. And it's how you combine them, and how you put together the workflow around them, that makes you successful today. And so right now, we spend a lot of time with customers just helping them through their first serverless project to get those things laid out. Like once you do it once, like, okay, this is actually really straightforward. And in fact, it makes my developers more productive because they're writing less infrastructure related code and more just business logic. But I think it would be really difficult for somebody who's never seen this at scale, just all of a sudden adopt it in a major project. I think you need that sort of like, hey, who's done this before? What tools do I assemble? I don't feel like as an industry, we've gotten that to like an easy button.
0: And to get an idea, what would be some of the tools that somebody should be looking at? If I'm like, hey, so I've got A small team. Let's say I had fifteen or twenty engineers, and I wanted to start experimenting with some of them, maybe spinning up some serverless uh, microservices that I could then kind of stitch into the mix. Because usually, I find that sometimes it's easier to start with a point function. Right? Sure, I've got containers, I got Kubernetes, all that's up, and I'm on microservices. But there's this one video encoding project that the code for it's super straightforward, but it just needs to scale up and scale down depending on user load. Like, what are some of the tools that I would use to make that a an enjoyable developer experience for the initial team spiking it out?
1: Yeah, I would definitely start with serverless framework. So this is an open source project that supports all the hyperscalers. And in the case of AWS, it transforms your very simple configuration into cloud formation. But it takes care of like packaging the application, uploading it, uh, and deploying the cloud formation and giving you kind of status feedback. And it comes with tutorials. It comes with tons of ecosystem plugins for other tools you might want to use. It comes with plugins that simulate parts of AWS so your unit testing can work more effectively. That was the one place I would point you to start. That sounds great. And then to to go back a step, so that's great for serverless. Uh,
0: And it sounds like it's come a long way from when I first remember seeing the Hello World tutorials for AWS Landers, which was like, cool, but no. Are you seeing most people adopting it wholesale? Like, hey, we're going to take our monolith and turn it into... uh, 700 lambdas or is it more like they start with point solutions and then it just becomes another tool in the toolkit to say do we need to spin up a container for this particular functionality in the this particular service or can we get away with a lambda for this particular one
1: yeah i mean my advice to customers is is not to try to make these like hey you will use the stack you will use this technology kind of decision for their whole team uh, i think the most successful technology teams actually let each Team own an application from code to production, including when it breaks. And those teams need the flexibility to choose the right technology stack for what they're doing. And that way you're picking the best solution for the problem and not trying to shoehorn a specific stack just because it was decided as a standard for the enterprise. I would like to hope that that's going to mostly land in containers and serverless today. Uh, But I think within one sort of big application, you might see some microservices that are serverless and some microservices that are containers. And I think that's a great approach because again, it's not a one size fits all. If you've got a long running task, that's not like event driven, that's maybe doing a big batch job, containers might make more sense. Um, Or if you're taking existing code that you want to more quickly refactor and get into the cloud, containers almost certainly will make more sense. And so why not leverage containers where you need to and then for new stuff that you're building, take a look and say, hey, can this part be serverless? With everybody moving towards API-driven microservices, it doesn't really matter. There's not like a technology compatibility issue. At the end of the day, we're gonna make web service calls to each other.
0: And now some exclusive offers from my partners. Amazon Web Services offers a broad set of global cloud-based products to equip technology leaders to build better and more powerful solutions. Partnering with CTL Connection, AWS is now offering an exclusive program to our listeners. The program includes up to $100,000 of AWS credits, a free consulting session with an AWS solution architect to review your environment, your strategies, and optimize your costs, and other resources to help you to get started on migrating to AWS. If you're interested in learning more, please reach out to aws-ctl-program at amazon.com. To lend a hand to those ramping up remote engineering processes, Code Climate is offering the CTO Connection community 45 days of full access to their engineering analytics application, no strings attached. Velocity turns SCM data into actionable insights so leaders can get visibility into the speed, capacity, and output of their newly distributed teams. Your 45-day package will include access to the full capabilities of the Velocity Professional Package, a consultation with a product specialist who will map your key initiatives to data, and a training session for engineering managers and executives about how to interpret and apply this data in a way that engenders trust. CodeClimate hopes that this will equip engineering leadership to take on a new set of challenges in the weeks ahead. To request access, head to codeclimate.com slash ctlconnection and use the code ctlconnection. I've got to ask because the word microservices came up a number of times. And I, I think this is becoming a, a point of contention for people. And it's it's just about the, the language. It seems to me like people simply use the word microservices for SOA, right? For service-oriented architecture. They're not really classic. Hey, no service shall have more than 200 lines of code microservices. Would you say it's just... It's just none of us can anyone who remembers j two e doesn't want to talk about service oriented architecture, so we just call it microservices, even though it's often a collection of monoliths. would would that be fair? like how, how do you think about the terminology and the the meaning of it? What is microservices
1: that's a that's a really, really um, good question. So, as I've said earlier, I don't take the view of like being super dogmatic on these things or being super fixed on what these things mean because what I've found is that like it doesn't matter what the strict construction is. What matters is the concepts we're trying to communicate. And so I think the problem with SOA is it reminds you of the days of like enterprise service buses or of these like really complicated applications that have these unnecessarily deep layering structures to them. And, you know, just like XML files, it probably just brings back memories of XML files, quite frankly.
0: (laughs) Doesn't everyone need enterprise Java beans?
1: Exactly, exactly right. And so, you know, As an industry, we've moved on from that kind of approach to a simpler programming model, which I'm a big fan of. But microservices really mean that concept of, hey, services that do one thing and and do it really well. Now, what one thing means to you is kind of flexible and fluid and will probably change over time as your application grows. But I would say the biggest distinguishing factor here is when I hear microservice, I assume we are using web-based, HTTP-based APIs to access each other whereas when i hear soa i tend to think more like a service bus a message bus of some kind got it
0: that that makes sense and then just to go to the other end of this because i see a lot of teams who are like hey we got 3 engineers and 12 services i'm like no i mean there are use cases where that's the appropriate thing to do but like Let's say somebody's built a Rails app or a Django app or a, you know a .NET app, and it's kind of sort of working. At what point in time do you think they should consider having more than one service? Other than when there's an obvious business need, like different language, different scaling requirements, whatever it is.
1: Um, in a perfect world, as you scale up your application, each service is you know is maintained by uh, a team, or each few services are maintained by a team that are related. But I actually think it's more important to think about the logical boundaries at the beginning. So, I would not go overly aggressive on this. I would not create a service per like domain object, um, you know. Um but but I might create a service that's focused on managing and authenticating users, um, which is a pretty big set of functionality and another service that's focused on um, you know, my export to PDF function because that's such a specific bit of functionality, right? But I wouldn't take like every every object type in your in your um Domain model and create a different service for it. It's hard to answer this question because it's really uh, context specific. I would just say I, I don't base it on the number of developers. And I also don't base it on the number of domain objects. Think more through the logical operations of your app. And if you had to draw a boundary around categories of logical operations, those would probably make good service boundaries.
0: Which takes us back to kind of Eric Evans, domain-driven design, bounded contexts, things like that, right? Where you have these areas of the application that are collections of collaborating objects that are solving a particular set of use cases. And then presumably the other thing you need to do is take a little bit of time to say, that's great, but what are my, for example, latency requirements and how many calls are going to be required to aggregate the information for the homepage? So you don't end up with the you know
1: 12-second homepage challenge. That's right. And so... First of all, you need to optimize for that path. I mean, you need to optimize and make sure that APIs are very quick, very fast. And when they're not, that they have caching built into them so they can be very fast. You need to paralyze those operations as well and not be loading things serially. You need to look like if you need 10 requests to build a page, go make all 10 requests at the same time. My last bit of advice on this is if two services need to share a data source, you might rethink that boundary. So Services that access the same database, for example, are probably not actually distinct services. If you can't abstract the data into an API, then you haven't found the right service boundary.
0: And I think that's a great... um, I still remember even back in the day when people would have that one SQL server and 12 applications reading and writing the data. I'm like, how do you enforce data integrity constraints across 12 apps? And then they're like, oh, we'll do it in the database. But unfortunately, it's not a sufficiently rich type system for you to say, like, how do you get the database to say, is this a valid social security number or is this email deliverable, right? You you need some kind of service wrapping around that stuff.
1: Yeah, and I think we've, as an industry, gone to a model where we want the database to be not quite that intelligent anyway. Like we want databases to, to really be like, you know, almost key value stores with some fancy indexing. We don't want to do triggers. We don't want to do application logic of the database layer. It's hard to version alongside our code it tends to put extra load on the database and gives you a new uh, point of scaling challenge.
0: I, I was building uh, a effectively something like a Squarespace solution back in 1999. And yeah, the, one of the first engineers I hired loved stored procedures. And it was a nightmare because there was no way. I mean, I suppose you could manage and version them as like text files and like run tests against them, but it was just so much harder to test than application code.
1: And it binds you to this traditional relational database model as well. And, you know, going back to the pick the right technology for the problem story, if some microservice is better with uh, a key value store, or you know, whether it's Elasticsearch, or whether it's DynamoDB, or whether it's Redis, like if you're going to enforce business logic at the database layer, you're going to have to use just one database, and that's, that's going to limit you. Absolutely.
0: So I was chatting the other day with uh, Colton Flair-Andrus, who is the CEO and founder of Gremlin you know, kind of the whole chaos engineering thing. who's at Amazon and Netflix. How do you think about when people, I notice that people often have this vision of like microservices is going to solve all my problems. And it's like, yes. And it's going to give you this whole new set of problems like resilience and observability. When you're dealing with clients, how do you talk to them about thinking about resilience? Do you play with like chaos engineering? Like let's switch off five out of seven services and see if somebody can still check out that kind of automation of determining how resilient your application is?
1: I mean, I'd like to say that everybody, every customer gets to that level of sophistication, but the reality is I think of those more as aspirational outcomes for the most part. Um, it, for mission-critical you know, e-commerce type applications where the financial well-being of the organization is dependent on this web property, it, it makes sense to do that. It makes sense to take that very seriously. In other cases, what I'm worrying about or what I want to caution against is like on day one of your startup, is that where you wanna spend your effort? And I would say probably not because it's not probably the biggest priority. And we see a lot of people look and say, hey, Netflix does it this way. And I wanna be like Netflix. And I think that aspirationally, that's totally true. And everyone should be learning from these incredible technology powerhouses. But do you wanna invest your first three or four months in getting that perfected? Or do you wanna get the MVP out the door? Knowing that you're gonna have to come back and get to that eventually, And so, don't make decisions that lock you out of that. But I'm not sure that that's where you want to start.
0: That makes sense. And then, what about? How do you think about things like observability and tooling around that? Because again, the challenge with uh, distributed services is debugging can become non-trivial. What kinds of tooling or approaches do you recommend to get people started with that?
1: Yeah. So I think the this is actually a big problem in our industry. There's a lot of third-party commercial tools. So like you know, the new relics of the world that are trying to add value in the space. Amazon has a product called X-Ray that's adding value in the space. But I I don't actually have a specific recommendation here. I think you have to take your application requirements and observability requirements and and kind of look for the right solution. So I would make sure you start with some logging solution that gets all the logs in one place at the very least. Um, I would do some basic things like make sure there's a distinct request ID for sort of an incoming web request that persists through all the systems so you can trace a full request. But I don't actually haven't found like a magic bullet to say, hey, just deploy X and you're good to go.
0: Makes sense. And then I know we're coming towards the end of our time. Are there any other things that you'd recommend? uh, Let's break it into two things. Firstly, for anybody who is still has applications that they're considering to move to the cloud. And then secondly, for anyone who's who's got a cloud-native application but wants to move it to the next level?
1: Yeah, so for those that are looking to move to the cloud, and I'm glad you actually said something very critical, which is moving applications to the cloud as opposed to moving infrastructure to the cloud. So first of all, I would say to anyone adopting the cloud, you should focus on applications. If the first question that your partner asks you is how many servers do you have, you've probably got the wrong solution. Because we don't we don't we're not concerned with the number of servers we're not trying to replicate the current environment in the cloud what we're concerned with is which applications do you have and what do their end state in the cloud look like that end state might be very similar but it's still going to be at least rebuilt with some automation and some deployment pipelines and some new strategies around patching that whole evolution is what we refer to as becoming more cloud native and so I would just my biggest advice to everybody is. Don't lift and shift to the cloud. Consider a mechanism where you can become more cloud native. You don't want to just take your data center and end up with another data center that has no address, that doesn't deliver the cost or scale or reliability value of the cloud that you're looking for. Instead, you need to do a technology and process transformation along the way to the cloud. And you will reap not only the benefits that you've been promised from the cloud, but also you're now going to be a more agile, more effective organization that can innovate quicker and get to market quicker. And these benefits are so much more valuable than just the cost savings. So that's my advice is to be cloud native.
0: And then do you have any advice for uh, people who, who are now, they have their cloud native application, it's running along. Are there areas that you find like, well, if you've got the first level done, here are some optimizations or some ways to kind of keep improving your processes or systems?
1: So a lot of customers that, adopt the cloud in a cloud-native way, will still start with virtual machines. They'll just have organized how they deploy, manage, and monitor them in a cloud-native way. So the evolution for them is, okay, now which of those can move to containers? And then now which of those can be refactored to serverless or maybe their end of life and can be replaced with a new serverless um, application? So the path to me is like virtual machines to containers and then to serverless. It's not always that serverless is the end state. It's possible that containers is the end state for some applications, but I would definitely consider if you're on VMs today, if you adopted the cloud two years ago, you almost certainly adopted an entirely VM-based way. I would now be looking at how do I leverage containers and serverless more? Now, what comes after serverless? Peter, I'm, uh, I'm curious to find out too.
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, Tolga, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Great, thank you. This episode was produced by the amazing team over at Dante32, a podcast production agency focusing on content strategy, audio production, and distribution. Check them out at Dante32.com. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. Thank you.